The Republicans and the conservatives are depending on people feeling like they're powerless. We need to make people feel powerful. And what makes people feel powerful is democracy. You take some effort and you make a concrete action. And that action leads to a concrete positive result in your life. That makes you feel powerful. And that's what democracy is. It's you taking responsibility for your own life. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Sam Drismala, is founder and executive director of Progressive Victory an online community of activists, content creators, and volunteers who are using the power of the internet to win elections and protect democracy. Sam, who has deep experience in digital political communication for Democrats, is particularly focused on reaching people on the Twitch and YouTube streaming platforms. We had a good conversation about his career path and why the creators on these platforms can be useful in moving politics in our direction. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Sam Drismala of Progressive Victory. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Sam, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Sandra's Mala. I've been working in progressive politics for the last 20 years or so. I have worked for a number of elected officials and on electoral campaigns. I have worked at a, as an independent consultant for the last several years, and, and now I'm, uh, I'm working with an organization called Progressive Victory that I founded, which uh, works to integrate streamers who do gaming media like Twitch and YouTube streaming to pull their audiences into getting engaged in politics and voting, donating, volunteering their time on campaigns. That's cool. And it also fits in with some of the other episodes I've had throughout the fall with people who are praying to bring in influencers from a variety of platforms and connect them to progressive causes. So happy to have your efforts included in that and to learn about it. Yeah. Influencers are really big right now. People who work in progressive politics are really starting to recognize the power that influencers have in a big way. And not just influencers that are already in our networks, but just how multitudinous they are. They're everywhere. They are so, so impactful. I would love to talk more about that as we get into it. Can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up, your family, and how you got connected to politics originally? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I've always been interested in justice. I've had this really strong, that's not right type of feeling inside of myself from a very young age. And I found it hard to ignore that. So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, where my family was uh, living because my father was working for a local medical school. It was a pretty ideal 
young life. Uh, we, we had a great community around us, a lot of beautiful houses, and it was a, like an economically diverse area. So not a lot of elitism that I encountered. But then as I started to go out into the wider world, as I grew up uh, and left the area, then I started to encounter things that started to offend my sensibilities a lot. The basics is, which is that every human has equal value uh, to the universe. And so as I was moving through school, both in high school and then in college, I found myself drawn to politics and I started volunteering for local politicians. Most notably, my home congressman in St. Louis was Richard Gephardt, who at the time was the leader of the Democrats in the House. He was just nearing the end of his tenure in that role. And he ran for president in 2003 in the primary for the 2004 race. And uh, I worked on that race as a just an unpaid intern and went to Iowa a bunch of times. And I, that really solidified for me that this was what I wanted to do, at least at that point in my life. And it's just continued on. I've never felt like it was the wrong thing. I've always felt like I needed to double down and keep on going at every time, every point. So it's been like pretty much continuous threads from there for me. It's kind of nice when it works that way. And yeah. A lot of people I know it's like, they're like, Oh, I don't know what, I don't have any direction. I don't know what to do. And, and I feel really grateful that I've never really had that feeling. What was your first job out of college? My first job out of college was working for a, a consulting firm called the Glover Park Group. There were a bunch of old Clinton uh, administration hands and, I had a lot to learn from them because they understood all the best tactics at the time, right? The, the best tactics that were used in the 90s and early 2000s. I was really into statistical analysis. I got into stats in college. And so I wanted to apply that to survey research. And it didn't go so well for me. I wasn't, I didn't really understand how to interact. I, you know, I'm kind of, my brain's a little bit different. I think it was a very frustrating experience for them working with me. I had to figure out how to fit into a team. And also I was going through a period where I was changing what I was interested in, right? Like I came into this thinking that I was really interested in survey research and polling because that's what I had liked in college. But then I started seeing, and this is in 2006 when I graduated college, I started seeing Act Blue blow up and all of these congressional candidates raising millions of dollars online. And I said, oh, okay, this is where I need to be. I need to be doing internet work. <laughs> so it was not going very well with Global Heart Group. Thank you to everyone who was working with me for being so patient with me as I figured this out. I left that job and I got another job working for a small nonprofit called Progressive Majority, which is part of Bob Borisage's empire at the time, Center for America's Future. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with all these organizations, but he was a, at the time a big darling of a lot of funders in the in the, the progressive space. So he had a lot of these organizations that were sort of nested together. And one of them was Progressive Majority, which I was so grateful to work for because they were focused on recruiting and training local candidates for office. And I got to do online organizing for all these candidates across the country who were ideologically aligned with me. So I worked for them for a couple of years. And then in 2008, I got picked up by the Obama campaign and to work on their email fundraising team, right? There's an email team and I was doing mostly state emails, not the fundraising, but the, the email team was mostly doing fundraising and that changed everything. I mean, that, you know, uh, all of a sudden the work that I was interested in was, was important to people when I got back from that experience, when I got back to DC. 
I want to pick up the one thing that you said, not to make it too much of it, but your brain being a little bit different. Oh, I think, yeah. <laughs> I, think all, I think all of our brains are a little bit different. That's true. But what, what did you mean by that? I've always been a bit of a dreamer and I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Now I think it's classified as ADHD type something. I don't know. Anyway, I didn't have a lot of hyperactivity, but I was mostly just inside my own head. I think it's probably linked to autism, but I'm sort of like, I just feel like I'm, I'm able to, to sometimes hack how it is to feel like the, you know, people who are in the middle of the bell curve, but a lot of the time, I, you know, in the, in my true self, it's not really authentic. So it's been really difficult for me to fit into the mold that I, I assume that people want to see from me. And actually the work I'm doing right now has been really freeing because I'm around a lot of neurodivergent people like myself, and it feels like coming home in a, in a, in a big way. And it's amazing that these young people who all feel a little bit different than what, what's been expected of them have found each other, you know, begun to build relationships with each other and started to build identities around this that are positive for themselves. It's really inspiring for me. And I've learned a lot from them about that. I mean, I think a lot of life is finding what fits you, not what someone else thinks would be right for you. Well, and politics is a, it's a group sport. So it's really important that people work together well. It's not that I resent the the factual need for me to fit into the way other people work. I think that's been very necessary as I've gained my training. But but I think the beautiful part now is working for myself on projects that I'm spearheading and working with other people who think a little bit like me. There's just more and more of these, ki these kids who are coming into the space doing this, uh, that it it feels a little freeing because then I can breathe a little bit more into what, what it feels authentic to be me without fitting into pre-existing mold. Do you happen to be aware of the Scottish comedian Fern Brady? I'm not, no. She's a very interesting comedian and talented and very intelligent and always was very different growing up. And I recently listened to her memoir. She's diagnosed as autistic later in life, like in her thirties. And it presents very differently in women, especially very smart women. And she's f probably further on the spectrum than you may not be at all, but. Um, I think I am just a little bit, right? Like yeah. I, 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 I find that I form connections that other people don't see that are useful to me. Yeah. Um, continue. But anyway, I, I commend that book to you if, okay. uh, if look. you're interested or her, her work, because just, if nothing else, she's great accent and she's funny. Anyway, tell me a little bit about what came next after the Obama email writing. Yeah, so so that was an amazing experience. I mean, being a part of that team, which again, was the most cutting edge team at the time. So I just have, I feel like I've just found my way somehow, like wormed my way into these spaces where I've ended up being with the people who were on the cutting edge at any given moment. And then left to swim as my little minnow self whenever that moment ended and there was a new innovation happening. So I was like the last person on the team or all second last or something. And I learned so much so fast that it was hard to really integrate it. Like I didn't really understand what I was learning until afterward. And then I realized afterward how much I'd changed when I went into other opportunities. And everybody was starting to recognize this. All of the more senior people on the, the Obama digital team were 
forming consulting firms because they were all of a sudden they were like the gods of the universe. Right. And so they would sort of like pitch me opportunities and I would keep in contact with them. And it was really cool to be a part of that network. But I, I had always coveted the idea of working on the Hill just because that's where real power is, especially in the Senate. Presidents come and go. You get at most two terms. Members of the House have very little power individually, and you really have to be there for like 30 years in order to, to gain any real power as a House member and just focus exclusively on the House. Senators, each one is important. Each one is an island. And they all have a major impact. And the Senate is a an institution that's built purposely to be not transparent. It's like obfuscated. It's opaque to the public because they are the, the whole ethos of the institution is that we're the ones who know best. And we're going to slowly think about this and mull this over and do the right thing. Right. And that goes all the way back to the founding. And the rules of the institution are amazing. Obviously, they've changed over time. I loved taking the, every person who works in the Senate. Sorry, I'm like going off on a tangent here. I'll get back to the point in a second. Every person who works in the Senate has the opportunity to take free classes that are unavailable anywhere outside of the Senate on procedure, on Senate procedure. So it's like this once in a lifetime, if you work in the Senate, if you ever get a chance, go do it. Find time to go to these classes because you can't learn it anywhere else anywhere. There's no university that teaches this. It's only taught by people who run Senate procedure for the Senate. And so all these rules have changed over time, but the rules that are at the base of the pyramid for the Senate are total unanimous consent. The only way that the Senate worked when it when the, during the, when the constitution was formed was if every Senator agreed to do something. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the, the, the social pressure there to conform, but also this, the pressure for people to stand up and interrupt the process. It's sort of like this balancing. Anyway, I loved it. I got to work for Claire McCaskill, who was my home state senator. She, like a lot of people, were hiring dedicated digital staff for the first time. So I got to go work in a small communications office run by a communications director. We had a press secretary and then a deputy press secretary and me. And I was sort of like the, the nerd who got to jump into this and learn how traditional communications offices worked. And I got to apply a lot of the things that I learned up to that point, how to use the internet for traditional communications purposes, which was just happening for the first time, right? Like Twitter was just catching fire. And the senator I ended up working for, Claire McCaskill, was one of the early pioneers of Twitter. And Jack Dorsey came and visited our office. And I got to meet that guy. This is in 2009, because she was one of the top two, three users of the platform at the time in Congress. Right place, right time. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's amazing how these things are just unfolded for me. I would ask you about bully pulpit since that seemed to be next on your list because, and I know Andrew Bleeker from when he was early in his career before founding bully pulpit. But. Yeah. Well, he, so he's one of those people I was talking about who got to form his own consulting firm with the backing of other luminaries from the Obama campaign. And they, they were doing lots of international work. I was super interested in it. And so I left Claire McCaskill's office to go work on a project in Brazil. And it didn't go well. Again, this is the second time that I had a really tough experience and I, I felt really bad about it. I was not cut out to be a consultant at the time. I didn't really understand the dynamics. I think that probably a little bit of my micro autism that I was talking about before probably got in the way. There was some cultural difficulties, but I did not handle it well. And basically the people I was working for in Brazil told me I had to leave. Wow. Yeah. This sad. I felt really bad for Andrew because he had handed me this golden opportunity and I kind of screwed it up for him, but he was really kind and 
and allowed me to, to stay on and do some work for him for a little bit until I found that next job, which was working as a communications director in the 2010 bloodbath <laughs> for our Congress. The shellacking. The shellacking, exactly. The shellacking. And that was Grayson? Alan Grayson, yeah. So I was like, again, I was, I was trying to find the places where there was the most application of internet culture. And he had this amazing brand that he built up with the like true left wing at the time, true left wing brand. A congressman of guts was what he called himself. It was a pretty rough race. I don't want to get into specifics, but it was rough internally on the campaign. And, you know, I, I tried my best to handle it, but was not, you know, I, I had lots of things that I wish I had done differently there. And then the race itself was really, really hard. Obviously, we were just getting creamed at the national level. But it was my first experience, like, running the show on communications. And that was really cool. I've gotten to do that a few times since, and it's always been fun. So at this point in your career where you have referenced a lot of the things that you were learning along the way, what would you say a couple of those were? I would say authenticity, which, is, which carries through to today, right? Like you got to be the same person in your published media as you are in real life or else it will fall apart. It will. And give people concrete asks. Give people things that they can do to add that make an actual difference and makes sense, right? In progressive politics, we call this theory of change. It's like a really fancy way of saying, just make it really clear to everybody what you want them to do and why it's going to matter. And then that actually has to line up with reality. I think we, in the ensuing years, and the reason why I've been so frustrated for like 10 years, the last 10 years, is because I think we've been lying to our activists about what will actually make a difference. And we've been telling them to sign petitions. We've been telling them to give money. And we've been keeping that money opaque from them and giving them no input on how it's spent. And I think that's a problem. Did you get a chance to go back to Missouri after that? Yeah, I did. I got to go work for a home state member again. I got to work for Russ Carnahan, who was my uh, my congressman. He had taken over for Richard Gephardt when Gephardt retired. I was hired as the deputy communications director. And then the communications director left and I just was promoted to communications director. So I did that for about a year. I had basically just been trying all this crazy stuff and failing like more than 50% of the time, knowing that I had the Obama connections for the reelection that would get me something cool to do. And so at that point I was starting to think, I really felt ready to like spread my wings and, and be a leader in showing how to use internet content for electoral purposes, published internet content. So Steve Gear, who is a long-term mentor of mine, he's now a consultant in New York. He was the email director for Obama 08, and he got connected to American Bridge, which was this research super PAC in 20, that formed in 2010, 2011, right after the, the Supreme Court Citizens United case. They had built this amazing, like, trove of information on Republican candidates. And then they had this traditional communications office that would like, you know, seed it out to reporters, but they had put no thought, of course, you know, it's 2011 or whatever. They, they had put no thought into how the internet fit into any of this. So Steve came to them and was like, bro, what are you doing? You got to carve out some of your budget dues to do something on the internet. And they're like, yeah, you're right. So he recommended me and somebody else to be at, there were two of us to go work at American Bridge repurposing the content for for publication and consumption on social media and with bloggers 
who were still really important and influential at the time. And that was honestly the height of my professional. I actually think that political professionals probably peak just naturally around 29 or 30, because that's when we're still young enough to understand where the cutting edge is, but we're old enough to have synthesized a lot of that knowledge. The problem is nobody with money will give a 28-year-old the keys to the kingdom, right? So you're dependent on people who are a little more advanced in their career, like where I am now, to give you the credibility to actually run the program. But 28-year-old knows how to run a better program, I think, generally, than a 36-year-old. I guess I had interviewed Brad Baychuk. Yes. He was one of the top people at the organization, and I learned a lot from him. He was a big champion of this, and uh, and it was great uh, working with him. And I, yeah, he, he's wonderful. And, and so it sounds like that was a good experience for you. Yeah. Yeah. I was very much driven by fear of failure. So it was like a lot of anxiety, but it was definitely the peak of my effort to really kick a lot of ass in electoral politics. And we did. I mean, the stuff that I was a part of, you know, when Mitt Romney said binders full of women in debate, I was the one who nabbed the URL bindersfullofwomen.com and we built a microsite overnight. I don't know if you remember this, like, Todd Aiken, who was running against my old boss, Claire McCaskill in Missouri, said, you know, if there, you know, he had this clip where he said, if there's a legitimate rape, the pregnancy, the woman's body can shut down the pregnancy. And we found that clip and we elevated it out of local St. Louis media and into the national stratosphere over a weekend. And it became, it was so beautiful, right? Because it happened, basically well, at the time, I don't know if you remember the vibe. I do. It won, it won the race. Well, it was one of the things. So well, it, my, my interpretation of the vibe at the time was that every week, there's like a weekly cycle. There, at least at the time, there was a weekly news cycle, right? And every week, the, the Mitt Romney campaign was thinking, how can we get the press and the public focused on the economy? And every week, the Obama campaign was thinking, how can we distract everybody from the economy? So we had to find a distraction every week. This was a distraction that, that put a cloud over the Republican convention, which was the following week. So it was like a two-week distraction that did exactly what we needed to do leading into the Republican convention. And it was it overshadowed the whole thing. It was beautiful. Was that the same election with the witch comments in Delaware? Yes, or was that a, yes, yes, it was the same one. <laughs> yes, uh, that was all enjoyable. I am not a witch, she said in an ad that she put millions of dollars by. <laughs> may, may we have that again this cycle? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. How'd you get connected to Cory Booker? So, so then after that campaign, uh, I was just looking for the next thing to do. I had some ideas of stuff I wanted to do, which actually is very similar to the stuff I'm doing now, but the media wasn't the like youth media wasn't ready yet. And I just thought that I needed more experience, more leadership experience. So I was looking for like a, someone else who would go to the Senate who asked why I could keep up my Senate credentials. Right. So he announced for Senate, they were looking for a digital director, which it just means you're going to doing all the digital stuff for the campaign. And he's like already known for his social media savvy. So I was like, you know, great. So I went in there. It was a really tough race, tougher than people realized. All the stuff that's happening right now with the right-wing media machine on the internet was really pioneered during that race. After 2012 was when it really woke up and it was gearing up for something called Gamergate, which maybe we'll get to later. But we were sort of the first tip of the spear to can the right-wing create a media narrative that supplants the official narrative in the race. And they were succeeding. And it really was the Republican shutdown in 2013, where they purposely wanted a shutdown. They shut it down on purpose. They shut down the government on purpose. And the candidate we were running against, I forget his name now, uh, Steve something, he embraced the shutdown. He said, I think we did need the shutdown. And that was not good for the people of New Jersey. I mean, people of New Jersey is all very structured and a structured 
by the union movement. Unions are the thing that structures politics in, in New Jersey. So a shutdown was not good for union jobs, period. It's just not. It's like a, just a creation of chaos for no good reason from a lot of people's perspective. It's also a homeownership state. So homeowners are dominant. It's not like New York where there's a lot of renters, right? New Jersey is if you own your home. So you, anything that could bring down the value of your home or your 401k or whatever, anything that could cause instability or chaos is, is a problem for New Jersey voters. So when he said, yes, we need a shutdown. So at that point, we were like internal to the campaign. We were like, we were thinking about how we we're going to hit him on Social Security, thinking about how we we're going to hit him on like Medicare or whatever. And the communications director was talking to me about the, all these hits he had planned. And I was like, I was like, man, let's just like call him shut down Steve and be done with it. And he was like, you're not wrong. And he went to all the consultants on the team and sold that to them. And then we made a poster board overnight and, and Corey went out <laughs> to do a press conference where he called with shut down Steve across the top of the poster board. And that was what solidified the race for us. Look, they, the execution was the whole team, but I feel really good that I came up with the idea of shut down Steve. Yeah. Not too many people get to say that they <laughs> had a idea that actually made a difference in a race. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. And then I followed him to the Senate and worked with him there for a few years. Do you have an opinion about him as a guy? Like, yes. Because every time I've talked to somebody who worked for him, they sort of testify as to what a nice guy he is. It's not, it's not that he's nice. Yeah. It's that he's kind. Honestly, I, my, just watching him changed my life. He is very centered. I don't know his full biography. Did you ever watch the movie about him running for mayor? Yeah, Street Fight. Yeah, yeah I watched it yeah. right before I went to his race. So yeah, good movie. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And and I met the filmmaker and everything on and during the race. It was cool. So he spent like most of his twenties in spiritual search. Right, he was talking to people for, like Buddhists, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and he was putting together his foundation. Right, and so by the time that I met him. He was like on another level. He meditates every day. He became a vegan during the race that I was working on with. And it's not that he doesn't have his weaknesses, right? It's that he always comes back to center and he's trained himself to look for opportunities. He has this ego that is present in all of us, but he, he, he's realized that he can lasso that ego to something larger than himself to make it useful to the world. And so like... One example that I think of all the time is when he ran for president, he was like weird. He, when he, when he announced, he brought all these reporters with him to his neighborhood in Newark. All the reporters were like commenting on how strange this was. I didn't talk to him about this, but I know why he did this. I know the reason why he did this is he was thinking to himself, okay, I'm announcing for president. I don't know whether I'm going to win or not. I do know that I'm going to dominate the news cycle for this one day. I can, I can, I can only guarantee that I'm going to dominate the news cycle for one day during this race. So what am I going to do with that opportunity I have? I know I'm going to go force all of these national reporters who never talk to poor people to talk to poor people and cover their stories because no one ever listens to poor people. So that's how I'm going to use this opportunity. And that's why he did that. I'm, I'm absolutely certain. I haven't talked about this, but that's how he thinks. He'll just he'll like wait for an opportunity. And then when he sees an opportunity, he's, he'll be at rest. And then when the opportunity arrives for him to do something that matters in the world, he will not hesitate. He'll just act. He's slow and then he's fast. And it's beautiful to watch. He, he has emotional ups and downs just like everyone else, but 
he treats everyone with kindness and uh, and he's happy to, to be in conflict. He will deliver a, a scathing criticism to you if he's feeling it right, but he will do it with love. And that is the most beautiful, beautiful thing about working with him. I was changed by working with him and in a really positive way. I, I suspect he wouldn't mind hearing that description of himself. <laughs> it's true. Uh, and maybe that slow than fast is kind of like the running back that he was. Yes. You wait for your opportunity to cut left or cut right. And, right. Yeah. It's the flow, the flow of the play. You have to wait for the play to develop, right? Yep. Um, you seem to have a connection to be a hero. Yes. Yes. So, so, okay. So after Cory Booker, I, I was like, I'm going to go be a consultant. I'm going to do some stuff on my own. And then Trump was elected. I went to be to go start my own firm in 2016, did some work on the 2016 election, and then Trump was elected. And all of a sudden, the entire grassroots of the Democratic Party was aflame, <laughs> enraged. And so there are all these new organizations popping up. So I started getting involved with that. And I met this amazing woman named Liz Jaff, who is, I don't know if you've ever been in contact with her. I, I but, have. I've, I've, I've interviewed her. Okay, yeah. great. So, so Liz, Liz was working on a bunch of stuff. She ran for party chair or some position within the party. Yeah. Uh, DNC was it vice, chair vice, or? vice chair, vice yeah. chair. Right. And, and I was, I was like, you know, I wanted to work with her on that. It didn't end up being the right fit at the time. Um, but we just kept in contact. And then Kavanaugh was nominated by Trump. And there were a lot of people who had worked for organizations that had raised money to defend a progressive Supreme court. And they were sort of making moves to sandbag the effort to stop Kavanaugh's nomination because they knew that Republicans would have the votes. They didn't want to be tied to a failing effort to stop Kavanaugh's nomination. That really angered me. You know, I, I really felt like that was a bad strategic move. The wisdom that's come to me from working on internet organizing is that there's not a finite pie of resources or attention. That it, it grows based on how big a deal you can make everything to the public and to your base. And so every what that means is every fight that you can take on is a capacity building test for the next fight. And it grows on itself, right? So uh, it's sort of more of like a television ads mentality if you're trying to conserve resources for later in a campaign. It's, it's much more of a internet mentality of you, you max out on every single fight. And so I really felt like that was the wrong strategic move. And so I got connected with an effort to jumpstart that anti-Kavanaugh fight that Liz was running because she felt the same way. We all started working together. We realized as a group that we couldn't run this as a slate against many different Republican senators, that, that, that then the focus would be too diffuse and they would all get away with whatever vote they wanted to make. So we decided to focus on Susan Collins specifically. So we, we set up this conditional fundraising thing where we were raising money that nobody's credit cards were charged. They were just pledging through this platform called CrowdPack, pledging to give money to support Susan Collins' future opponent. If Susan Collins voted for Kavanaugh, the credit cards would all be charged and all that money would go into an escrow fund that would then be sent to whoever the future opponent is. And I was hired basically because I was like aligned with them strategically. And I understood how the Senate confirmation process worked because I'd worked in the Senate multiple times. So they needed someone who understood 
what the cadence would be like during this. And I was like, because everybody's really frustrated, including the people who are funding it with how slow the fundraising was going at first. And I was like, everybody chill out. This is going to get big once the hearings start. And in fact, the allies of Be A Hero were bussing in activists who were all ended up wearing our Be A Hero shirts to fill the hallways at that time. So all these like different groups that all sort of had tenuous connections with each other came together to just blow the hell out of the Senate office buildings during the Kavanaugh fight. And what we would do is during the hearings, we would just continuously have all of this activist content that was up on Twitter. We would capture it, turn it into ad content, and then put our fundraising link under all the ad content. And we did these direct donation links that were, they were raising like 300, 400% ROI, which is unheard of. It's because we were melding this organic content, which is my specialty, with ads and fundraising. And that virtuous cycle where the fundraising, and then once we once we started getting high fundraising numbers, then that would go back into the organic and people would start pushing that around organically, right? So it's this virtuous cycle that grew something out of nothing. I had such a good time working on that, that Liz and Julia and I, and a bunch of other people who were involved in that continued on and working with Adi Barkin, who was this healthcare activist. Uh, and we all just wanted to keep working together. So we worked together, uh, backing up Adi and a bunch of other healthcare influencers, building up their social presences and getting them high profile ways to advocate for a more just healthcare system. And that was, it was beautiful. It felt like coming home, being on a team like that. It was one of the coolest things I've, I've ever felt. Sounds like quite a turn from some of the early experiences in your career where you were more challenged by the team. Here you've, you've really fit in. Yeah, well, I found people who act like me. <laughs> but but that's a, you know, like everybody has a different way of acting and you, you have to find your people, right? You have to find your tribe. I encourage everybody who, you know, don't don't be so this is this is a, a an icon from uh, a one of my favorite my favorite Japanese comic It's called One Piece. It's amazing. Anybody who wants to check it out, it's become my metaphor for life. It's the stories of a lot of different people who have really tough childhoods and feel alone. And they each have mentors who are telling them, don't lose hope. Go out to sea and there will be people who will treat you like family. That sounds like it's very moving for you. It is, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm getting emotional thinking about it. I see on your file cabinet a sort of skull and crossbones with a yellow yeah. head and a bandana. But what? what... That's, that's one piece. So one piece is a, is a story about pirates. And so there's like a... There's, there's like a, a law and order effort that's going on by, by a military force. And then there are people who are on the, on the fringes. They may be on the fringes because they're doing really bad stuff that hurts people, or they may be on the fringes because they're people who see the injustice inherent in the order. And I've always identified with those. I, I can see that completely. And, but here you are like really finding yourself in a certain way in the center of American politics. Yeah. So yes. And, and that I think is really important, right? That, that the, the romance that I feel about being a pirate, not get in the way of the effectiveness of what we actually want to do. Right. And there's a lot of romance in being an outsider, but what you really want to do as an outsider to be effective is allow yourself to be not bought off, but allow yourself to be incorporated into a new firmament that includes 
your perspective and the perspectives of the people that you bring into that format, right? So a lot of what I'm doing now with these Twitch audiences and, and YouTubers is taking a lot of these young people who feel like they have no impact or insight or ability to influence at all where the political system is. I'm telling them you do. All you have to do is work to elect Democrats in a way that they will understand that you're the ones who did it, that you're the ones who got them reelected, and they are going to care what you think they're going to adopt your agenda, and they're going to pass the bills that you want passed. Instead of being left-wing or socialist or bust, it's engage in the system forthrightly for what you care about and be a positive force for protecting democracy against fascism. Boy, that sounds really needed and... Again, you've placed yourself in an important and maybe pivotal place. Tell me, what is the founding story for Progressive Victory, which is where you're working out of for this? Yeah, sure. So I, I at the so I was working at uh, at Be a Hero during the pandemic, and I've been watching Twitch and YouTube political content creators for a while, and they just hadn't been big enough to be worth delving into. I think most people know what YouTube is, but tell people yeah. what Twitch is for those who don't. So Twitch is a live video platform where people will stream live. And it started based off of video games. People would stream their video games live and then talk to their audience members while they were playing video games. And it's all live. And it's done, really importantly, it's done not on mobile like Instagram live, right? It's done while you're sitting down at a computer and your audience members are also probably sitting at a computer, right? That's really important because that the... It, it changes the dynamic in the content from if you're like doing it mobile while you're distracted or, you know, out in the middle of somewhere else or whether you're sitting and focusing. Right. And that that's really, really cool. So Twitch has been so influential that it started to impact the other platforms like YouTube started to adopt live video capabilities like Twitch. And so now there are multiple platforms that do sort of the same thing, occupy that same niche. And it started in video games, but now everything has changed, right? As these young audiences have grown up, they start to have more conversations about things that matter to adults uh, while they're playing video games, or maybe they'll stop playing video games altogether. So could we be doing that right now? Could we be doing this interview raw on Twitch without much trouble? Yes. Yes. That happens all the time. That's That's what's happening. I get that. And there is something like going back to the whole authenticity when you see something unedited, when you see something with the the regular stumbles that people have, it feels differently than maybe a finished product. Yes. For publishing strategy and distribution, it's really important that you edit the clips and the, the highlights and, and push them out on your, and edit the clips on your YouTube channel. But the engine that grows all this is the live viewership. And that's really, really important. Anybody who is in this space will tell you that. Okay, so tell me about launching progressive victory yeah so so i've been watching it for a while it wasn't big enough to really be worth be being like investing all my time in it but then during the pandemic everybody was at home they were sitting and watching in a chair right also the 2020 election was happening so all of a sudden the number of political people who just talked to their audiences about politics political creators the number of those creators tripled and the audiences tripled overnight and I was like, okay, this is worth my time. You know? uh, so I started trying to form connections with a lot of these creators. It took me a while. I wormed my way in to some of them. And I convinced a foundation who will remain nameless in the progressive space to give me a budget of under $500,000 for the 2022 elections to 
try to mobilize some of these audiences. Do they not want to be known for this? Is that they they don't they don't like to be known as of yet. I mean, maybe they'll publicize something in the future, but yeah, uh, it's not that they want to keep it secret in general. They just have not given me permission. So anyway, so I had this small-ish budget to mobilize these audiences on Twitch and YouTube streamers. So I hired a team, and we were basically working. It took us like three months to get everything going. And we were really only active for like two months during the election. During that time, we got 5,100 volunteer uh, shift signups and knocked or like contacted 290,000 voters, both door knocking and, and phone banking. And that's pretty impressive in a really short amount of time with the amount of resources that we put into it, the budget that we had. The ROI was high compared to traditional field campaigns. So this is a tactic that I've been working to evangelize since then. It's, it's, a, it's a space with almost unlimited potential. The reason why is the live viewership sitting down at a computer is super, super powerful for action, for driving action. People who don't work in politics, they, they think of this all as sort of one thing. But for those of us who work in politics, there are really two theaters. There's the general voter. You're just trying to get them to register, vote and vote the way you want them to, right? You're not expecting them to do a lot more than that. And that's a huge, huge, huge audience. It's, it's the audience that matters most, right? But it's very diffuse. There's also an economy around running campaigns, and that economy is built on actions, action taking. And that's a much smaller audience, more focused audience is your base. That's where the if you're running a consulting firm in the space, that's where you're focused. If you're running a field program, if you're doing digital fundraising, Everything is around this smaller niche audience, but much more powerful audience of people who believe in you and want to do something. And the beautiful part about this live video stuff is that the, for the non-political gaming streamers who are still doing video games, they have audiences of 20, 30 million people, right? So that that is a lot of young people that we can reach with that. Is that in the U.S. or is that all everywhere? Internationally, but, yeah. but you know, why this is American accent English content. So it's very American, America and Canada, you know, and uh, so that like huge audiences, they're really important for reaching voters and registration and stuff. But these smaller political content creators, they can raise hundreds of thousands of dollars and they can mobilize thousands of young people, tens of thousands of young people to get involved in, in a way that is way more impactful than just signing a petition, but instead involves giving five hours a week of their time and fitting that into their life in a way that is not tied to a specific election or a specific politician even, right? Like I think one of the issues that we run into is we we have two things that we rely on the Democratic Party. One is urgency. You just scare the crap out of everybody, which is effective, but it wears people down long-term, right? We say, this is the worst. Oh my God, everything's falling apart, right? Sky is falling. Very effective. People get really burned out. Two, Hero worship, you know, Obama, Bernie, these are people who had large followings based on personal trust and personality, right? But Obama's gone, Bernie's gone. Where are those people gone? They're gone. They're not coming back, right? So we need to be able to harness both of those things in a way that's sustainable, sustainable over many elections and not based on who's running. That's actually the key to building something in a new world of the internet that isn't so unstable that it cracks apart and leads to authoritarianism. We need something that is slow, stable, 
every year plotting. People are like gardening in their backyard and they get a message on their phone and they're like, oh, oh yeah, I have to go like volunteer down at the polls to make sure that people are able to vote in this election. I've, I remember I, you know, I was supposed to do that. I volunteered for that. And they're like picking out five hours a week that they're doing volunteering in their community. That is what's at stake here uh, is the ability to do that. And the reason why we can do that is because all of these creators, all these Twitch and YouTube creators, they are that personality worship. All these young people who are watching them form these emotional bonds to them in the same way that they did to Obama and Bernie, except that these content creators are not leaving. They're not running an election and leaving. They're there every day and they have a publishing schedule that they need in order to maintain their revenue stream. So they'll be there every day and they're forced to think up the most urgent clickbaity thing they can to drive the most urgency of people drawing, actually coming and watching them, right? So they've got the urgency down because it's in their best interest to do so. And they've got the personality that just stays continuously. And if you have a group of a hundred or 500 of these people, even if one or two flame out, they'll always be replaced by more. That is a sustainable model for harnessing both outrage, urgency, and cult-like personality worship in a way that leads to healthy democracy. It seems extremely analogous to the TikTok world where I've talked to Conscious Lee, who's a African-American content creator who has a couple million followers and is constantly putting up new content and works with, do you know Ashwath who does influencer marketing? It, it seems like it's just to the side on a different platform has different strengths and weaknesses. Yes, different strengths and weaknesses, but, but super important. TikTok's great. Of course, I always worry whenever we're talking about a new platform and we're talking about how well we're doing on it, how well is the other side doing? Are there a bunch of right-wing content creators on Twitch that are being harnessed? Is this basically another another place on the battlefield, as I like to think of this? How do you see this? And how, what's the balance of power there? So I, I mentioned Gamergate. Okay, so Gamergate was an event that happened in 2014. And this is like the political awakening of the young right in a way that led directly, directly to the election of Donald Trump. It was a really important event for a lot of different people. It was important because all of these young men who were feeling disenfranchised or just playing video games and they really were not engaged with a lot, it brought up their resentments and frustrations and focused them in a political direction. So the person who pioneered this was Steve Bannon. He organized them for Gamergate. And then he built that into Breitbart. And that's what led Donald Trump to hire him as his chief strategist was what he did at Breitbart. And since then, the success of that, the entire model has been adopted by all the right-wing media and uh, the Daily Wire and, and Rumble, all of these things. We're talking about billions, like, you know, at least six, seven billion dollars have been invested by conservative funders into building actual businesses that funnel people into right-wing media that at the end of the this path, it's a funnel. It goes from here, there's links in the chain. It goes from gaming to red pill, to the black pill, to authoritarianism. And the goal is to keep people feeling powerless at every link in the chain, feeling as powerless as possible so that when the final solution comes, the final final solutions- You don't want to say it that term, way. <laughs> when the final opportunity comes to make a pitch to people, it's- you have to give your power to somebody else and they'll do it for you, right? Yikes. That is a the dominant model. And a lot of the reason why the political creators who are on the left today have grown in popularity is because they've been able to effectively bring people out, de-escalate 
that take people out of that pipeline that leads into authoritarianism and pull them into an alternative direction. And they just have never received any resources from the progressive movement before. They've just been doing it on their own. If you're watching this and you're interested in this, just Google bread tube, Google red pill, Google black pill, Google all these things, and you're going to find out more than you ever wanted to know. So now our task from the long term past the 2024 election, but starting now is to build a alternative pipeline that leads to people feeling powerful. The Republicans and the conservatives are depending on people feeling like they're powerless. We need to make people feel powerful. And what makes people feel powerful is democracy. It's democracy. Because when you take a concrete effort, you take some effort and you make a concrete action. And that action leads to a concrete positive result in your life that makes you feel powerful. And that's what democracy is. It's you taking responsibility for your own life. It sounds to me like we might, this might be another arena where we're behind. Is that it right? Is. Yeah. It is. Yes. Uh, why are we always playing catch up? on these platforms. We were ahead when Obama ran, but we sort of rested on our laurels for a while because once you start to think that you're ahead, then you don't, you're not willing to innovate really. So it's, you know, that's just the way it is. But I think that we've got, we're in a really open series. I mean, people feel really a lot of urgency. So I think that we're in an open period now where there's going to be a lot of new innovation that happens. You talked about how many people you got involved and to what purpose? How are we doing now? How's the effort going? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're on, the, on the path. We're on track to have at least 100,000 people in our community, you know, reach 20 million voters uh, and do a lot of fundraising for, for progressive causes as well. Does it feel pretty heady to you? Yeah, it feels like a lot of responsibility, but it's, it's so exciting because it's, it's such a wide open space. I'm running into a lot, a lot more people who are interested in this stuff and doing and working in this space. And there's so much to be done that we can't possibly do it all. So I'm just trying to grab as many people who are interested and bring them in. And, and I'm talking about other political professionals. I'm talking about young people in the space. It's like a giant sucking sound from both ends. The political world needs the energy that these, we don't have a pipeline of talent to work on campaigns anymore. They're gone. Right. And, and the young people are like, I'm disenfranchised. I, am in danger of becoming cynical and feeling like doom is coming. Like the young Gen Z is surrounded by messages of doom from when they were a baby, you know, like they'd just been told that everything from both the right and the left. That's right. That's right. And so this, this sucking sound, they both need each other. They need to be connected. So I'm just sort of like right here right now. And I need more people there with me to help make those connections and fit everything together. It seems like something that, one of our really well-funded super PACs or central efforts that have huge resources should piggyback onto. How are you doing with allies and, and scaling this as to maybe even be more than your, your vision? Very well. I, I, I shouldn't say more than that right now, but yeah, there are a lot of people who are interested in this. And, and like I said, there's a lot of openness to innovation and, and openness to, to doing this work among a lot of different people that is really inspiring and validating after so many years of feeling like I was sort of out in the cold. I feel like the, the time has arrived when, when there are a lot of people who are inter who really feel like the, the, the time for repairing democracy is now, and I'm really excited to be connecting with them. We talked about this couple decade road that you've taken with a lot of, you know, toiling in the vineyards 
and learning along the way. How much has what you learned in efforts that didn't work and did work and challenged you and grew you, how much does that play into what you're able to do now? It's the whole foundation, right? I think the biggest challenge that I have right now is letting go of that past frustration and just being a positive force, right? It's really easy to hold on to grudges and missed opportunities and still hold that in your heart. But really what's needed right now is to be in the moment, be in this moment where everything hangs in the balance and just put your shoulder underneath the platform. Uh, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do uh, every day. It, it feels like, unfortunately, the, the, the young people audience is going to be more contested than we would like to imagine with Trump, young people, Hispanics, a lot of uh, maybe taken for granted subsets of the electorate. Do you have any suggestions beyond your efforts about how we should be approaching that differently, how we should be speaking to young folks or folks that are more on the fence than we'd like? Yeah, I, I, I think that the young people are need to be the ones to lead. You know, I, I think I mentioned before that I feel like I peaked at 28 and I feel like whether they want to admit it or not, every political professional peaks around that age. Right now, the people in this space are, the challenge we have is that a lot of them are younger than that age. They haven't really been doing this that long. So I, I, I am needed to help to mentor them. But what I want to do is as soon as they are ready, as soon as possible, just hand everything over to them and say, run with this because they're the ones who actually understand these platforms. They're the ones who are native to this culture and understand how it works. They're the ones who feel the, the strongest urgency. They are the ones who've had this cultural experience of being surrounded by the doom mentality and are, are ready to emerge from that to claim their power now. Well, I feel a little weird about, as someone who's a little over twice 28 years old, to think that all of it should be handed over to people 28 and younger. Yeah, I get, I, I get the energy. <laughs> uh, I can feel it. I, I don't know if the historical knowledge and experience should be thrown completely away of the people with a little gray in their beards, which I start to see creeping into yes, yours, and I'm exactly. way ahead of you. So don't stop coaching. Oh, I, 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 I mean, the, agreed. So everybody needs mentors. And I think that's why I'm so interested in building in drawing in more of the professional class that exists now into this space. Because what I hope to do in the long term is take people who are established in this space, who have projects, and bring them in so that they can start to recruit out of this space. It's like an open forum where anybody can come in who, if you've got a project and a budget attached, you got a labor pool. They're here. And they're going to know how to execute on that. And you can be the strategic lead. And these young people can learn from you. And, and they'll know how to execute on your vision. Right. And, and then the young people get to learn and they get to become professionals themselves. One of the touchiest aspects, I think, of 2024 at this moment, when you speak about young people and certainly people who are on Twitch or something, is that Joe Biden is probably not on Twitch in his off time. He is not a young man. He might be a cool guy in certain respects, but he's not speaking with the voice of a 28 year old. Do you have any thoughts about? running a campaign that ultimately connects to a president who isn't young? Yeah, I don't think it matters. I think that a lot of these young people are very pragmatic and they know the situation we're in. And 
that's why it's important that you have content creators in your, your network who are able to speak about the importance of making a pragmatic decision and not a romantic decision in politics and, and couch it in romantic language. Cause that's what they, that's, that's what we, that's the old job that we need. And we need, when I say empowering them, I'm talking about the young, the content creators are young people too. They're the ones who understand how to communicate to their audiences. They do it every day. Helping them message this to their audiences is going to be key. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? I know. I, I, it was a great conversation. I, I can't think of anything that that's. Uh, well, it, it, it was a very good conversation for me too. I, I really honor what you're up to. I, it, it relieves me when I hear someone taking responsibility for some aspect of this broad fight that we're in. I wish you the best. Anything else you want to say? No, I, I really appreciate what you're doing with your podcast. I've often felt like there needs to be media made about what's happening in our professional spaces. And it's really cool that you're doing it. It's exciting. Thank you. That was Sam. He is at progressivevictory.win. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.